Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your words in Scripture. And I pray that you will guide my words so that we may all be drawn nearer to you, the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder whether you had a favourite story when you were a child. I did. It was about John and the camel. The camel was a naughty camel who managed to escape from the zoo and create havoc wherever he went. And if you had a favourite story like I did, I suspect that you wanted that favourite story read over and over and over again. And if you're used to reading stories to small children, your own children, grandchildren, nieces or nephews, you'll know that if they have a favourite story, you have to read it all. There's no good being in a hurry and think you can flick over two pages because they'll, they'll rumble you. Well, today we begin a new liturgical year on this first Sunday in Advent. And the liturgical year shapes how we tell God's story. Basically, of course, it's uh, based around three great festivals, Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. And each of those seasons has a time of preparation. We have Advent for Christmas. We have Lent and Passiontide and Holy Week for Easter. We have Ascension and those days leading up to Pentecost for Pentecost. And each of those seasons has what one might call an aftermath as well. Because after Christmas we come to Epiphany and we think about the sharing of the good news of the coming of Jesus with the rest of the world, not just the Jewish people. After Easter, we revel in those wonderful resurrection stories we find at the end of the Gospels. And then after Pentecost, well, <clears throat> we have all those Sundays, used to call them Sundays after Trinity. We call them Sundays after Pentecost these days. And uh, we rejoice in the way in which God's grace coming to earth has changed lives and changed our world in so many ways. And we go through the whole cycle year after year. Some people dismiss the liturgical year as simply a human invention, so we needn't bother about it. Well, I happen to think it's one of God's special gifts to us because it can be very inspiring. And we, um, it enables us to tell time and time again God's story. We do it in the hymns we sing and the, the way in which we phrase our prayers, in the Bible readings that we choose, um, in the drama that we have, the simple drama like the Advent candles, the Lenten cross that we use, the Good Friday procession, and things like that, and the special music that we sing. Over the years, I have to say that I found it a huge privilege as a minister when I've been, had pastoral responsibility of a church for several years to stand in front of the congregation and over a period of several years especially to watch small children grow and to respond as they hear this story told time and time again. And you can see a, a growing look of recognition. And yes, I've, I understand this, I've heard it before. I'm part of it. And they start to take part in the nativity play or whatever it happens to be until they come to be part of the telling of the story themselves and come and do their readings uh, and so on. There is a great emphasis in the Jewish scriptures about one generation declaring God's works to another. And I think that's what we're doing as we work our way through 
the liturgical year each time. We're telling God's story in order that we can rejoice in it and reaffirm it for ourselves, but in order, too, that we can draw the coming generations into that story as well. I'm particularly grateful to the choir this morning for singing uh, from Handel's Messiah. I did ask whether we might be able to have that. Thank you very much. Um, I was once minister of a church where it was their custom on the first Sunday in Advent to spend the Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening singing through virtually the entire work of the Messiah, with a break for tea in the middle. You'll be glad to know. Um, Handel's Messiah is one of the great works of all times, isn't it? It's well known for its stirring choruses, as well as for some of its haunting solos and duets. But it is a way of telling God's story through history, and as such, I think it actually is a very appropriate way of using Advent Sunday. It was a collaborative work. Handel, George Frederick Handel, the great composer, wrote the music. But a man called Charles Jennings drew together the lyrics. They are, of course, all words from scripture. If you analyze that compilation that Jennings made of these words from scripture, you'll find that almost no biblical scholar today would draw verses from here, there, and everywhere and throw them all together in one work in the way that he does. But it works. It works tremendously. And what Handel and Jennings set out to do was to stretch out before their audience the vast story of God and the human race. They begin with the story, the promise of God to a fallen world, the fulfillment of that promise in the coming of Christ, <clears throat> the triumph of God's love over evil, and the final reign of Christ. And if you want a good devotional book to read during Advent, um, I can recommend a book called 40 Days with the Messiah. 40 Days with the Messiah, which is based on all the words in Handel's Messiah, uh, with a reading for each day, uh, written by David Winter, an Anglican priest who's written many books uh, for the Bible Reading Fellowship. Very, very um, worth reading and a very helpful book to meditate upon. And so as we go through the, the liturgical year, uh, we're trying to do what Handel's Messiah does, to capture something of the mighty workings of God in history. And today here we are on the first Sunday in Advent. And I always feel a sense of excitement as we come to this Sunday. Clearly what we're doing in Advent is looking in two directions. We are looking back, but we're also looking forward. We're embarking on a looking back. To state the obvious, we're looking back 2,000 years to the birth of Christ. Because his coming didn't just divide history into BC and AD. His coming makes sense of all history. <clears throat> but we're taken back much further than 2,000 years. Jesus came to a people who were waiting. And it wasn't just Mary and Joseph who were waiting. It wasn't just John the Baptist who was waiting to go and preach in the wilderness and talk to people about Jesus. The birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of a promise that had been made over centuries. A promise made to Abraham when God promised to bless all the nations of the world through his faith and his obedience promise that was made through the prophets, their constant challenge to God's people to examine their behavior, to listen to God's truth, and to return to God's ways. 
over hundreds of years, God spoke and prepared people for believing that he would somehow and in some way intervene in our human mess and bring redemption. So the birth of Jesus was a fulfillment of those promises and that preparation that had gone on for long, long years. You know, Jesus often referred to himself um, in the scriptures, tried to explain how people had been preparing, uh, God had been preparing people. You think of that story at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the two friends who were extremely bewildered and we're told that he explained to them the things in scripture that referred to himself. He was, of course, referring to what we would call the, the Old Testament. And on another occasion recorded by John in his gospel, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. They do, in fact, tell about me. But you refuse to come to me and have that life. So as we look back, we can rejoice that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises over many years. And we can use this season of Advent to look back and rejoice and affirm that God is a faithful keeper of his promises. But we don't just look back, of course, we look forward as well. There's another focus to our minds and our hearts in Advent. We look forward to the end times or the second coming of Christ or the last things sometimes called the parousia. Traditionally Advent has been a time when many churches over the centuries have focused on four subjects of death and judgment of heaven and hell. About three years ago I, I had a Sunday off from going to church in the morning. It was uh, our regatta day in Dover when all sorts of people, tens of thousands of people actually come and uh, converge on the seafront and all sorts of local organizations had their stall. I thought I'd do my bit for God by joining the street pastor's um, stall that morning and being there. So I thought this is a morning off from theology, from thinking about God, at least until some guy that I knew who was a prison officer, known him when I was a prison chaplain, came along and saw me and wanted to talk about eschatology. And boy, did he have some strange and outlandish ideas I found my mind working overtime. It would have been safer to go to church. We sometimes leave the whole idea of thinking about the future and the end times, the second coming of Christ to the religious cranks who are so uh, anxious to try and tell us when it's going to happen. And of course, for some people, this topic becomes a bit of an obsession. I'm told there are people in America, possibly other places as well, who, who drive around with stickers on the bumpers of their cars saying, in the event of the rapture, this car will be driverless. <laughs> I guess it's for these reasons, because of these religious cranks, that we sometimes tend to park this whole idea of the, the second coming or the end times. But we do need to take it seriously. Just a few years ago, there was a lovely collection of Advent music uh, prepared for choirs. Uh, and in the introduction to that book, the late Bishop of Gloucester said that the period of Advent forces us to engage with the texts that speak of the end and to wrestle with the concept that Christ will come again. 
Our gospel reading this morning that Jenny's read to us came from a chapter where Luke records some of the things that Jesus spoke about the future. It's not an easy chapter to understand because in a way there's a bit of a jumbled collection of things here and we need to do some sifting. I find it helpful to think that it's, it's a bit as if Jesus was, when he looked to the future, was using bifocals. I don't know how many of you wear bifocals, but I have done for some years. I find they're very useful because, you know, the top half of the lens enables you to see a distance. The bottom half of the lens enables you to read close at hand. And so often when Jesus talked about things in the future, he was talking about different things. Some of the things he talked about were quite close up. He talked about the things that would happen about 40 years after the crucifixion, when the uh, Jerusalem was overrun, the fall of Jerusalem, the ransacking of the temple, uh, the judgment that came on people in those events. But in other things that he said when he was talking about the future, he was obviously looking through the top half of the lens uh, to a very long distance too, the end, the end times. And what he does say about the end times are quite clear, that there will be end times and that those times will be in God's hand. And God's victory over human sin will be final. And the reason why Jesus spoke about these things concerning the end times was not to get people wondering about when it would happen and to sit down and start doing calculations, but rather to indicate that the end would be in God's hand and that God's plans and purposes will not finally be defeated. And most of all, he spoke those words, of course, to be challenging to people, to make sure that they were ready. Now, whilst Jesus stated that no one knows God's times, there is a consistent message through running through the New Testament that God has an end plan. Now, it comes in different ways, expressed in different pictures. The men dressed in white who were alongside the apostles when Jesus ascended into heaven said to them, this Jesus who has been taken back from you will come in the same way. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, uh, said that Christ must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And when he wrote to the Ephesians, he talked about all things being gathered together in heaven and on earth under one head in Christ. And John in the book of Revelation talks about seeing a new heaven and a new earth because the former heaven and earth have passed away. These writings of Paul and John are based on the teachings of Jesus. Jesus who said on more than one occasion, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. You put all these things together and you find a very serious, clear, consistent message that there will be an end. There is a purpose to all that God has created, created and made and that he will gather it all together purposefully. We're not just waiting for some gigantic asteroid uh, to wipe off our globe or for a massive nuclear explosion to bring all human life to an end. As one writer expressed it, the universe belongs to God who's revealed his love in Jesus Christ and he's not going to screw it up like a useless piece of paper and throw it away. God's purposeful destiny for our lives and for his creation 
does imply, though, a time of judgment. And that is what we need to be ready for. Judgment challenges us all to be ready to give an account of ourselves whenever Jesus comes. So the question, the challenge is, are we ready to meet our maker? Whether that be at the end of our own lifetime, or whether it be at the end of all time. We heard Paul's prayer for the Christians in Thessalonica in that reading that Seth shared with us this morning. It was a prayer. May your hearts be made strong so that you will be holy and without fault before God our Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. And this focus of come Lord Jesus that we have reiterated already on a number of occasions in our service this morning. This focus in our Advent hymns and prayers is not about Jesus coming again in the crib at Bethlehem, but coming <coughs> to judge. So on this first Sunday in Advent, I'd like to invite you, myself, to do several things really. First of all, to affirm that the God is the Lord of all history, the beginning and the end. Secondly, to rejoice as we look back, we can do this, to rejoice that God is a faithful keeper of his promises as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ. Thirdly, to affirm that Christ is the centre of all history, the one who makes sense of why it is all there at all. Fourthly, to take seriously the teaching of Jesus that God, God has a goal for history, and the future and the end are in his hands. And so let's recommit ourselves to live in a state of readiness and to give an account to our God who has given us life and put us in this world. But immediately, as we start this liturgical year, a new liturgical year, let's do it with a sense of excitement. We've got the opportunity once again of telling God's story and wow, what a story. Let's pray together. I used one of the short collects for today. Lord our God, keep us your servants alert and watchful as we await the return of Christ your Son so that when he comes and knocks at our door, he may find us vigilant in prayer with songs of praise on our lips. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.